Hey everyone, it's Alan Murabayashi reporting to you from New York City, the headquarters of Photo Shelter. We're here with another broadcast of I Love Photography Live. For those of you joining us on YouTube, you probably found us on youtube.com slash photoshelter. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast, you probably found that on iTunes by searching for I Love Photography. If you are listening to the audio podcast, you can get all the links at blog.photoshelter.com. And boy, do we have a lot of links today. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Sarah. It's the first time we've been in the same city in a while. I know. Jacobs. It's nice to be that we're both in New York. Hi, Alan. How you doing? I'm good. I just dodged two hurricanes uh, <laughs> coming out of Hawaii, uh, landed two hours ago, and happy to be back in some nice sunny weather. Yes, glad that you're safe. So this is kind of a, a first for us in I Love Photography. Hashtag I love photo in case you want to tweet at us. It's a first because we actually have a guest on the show today, and I don't think that's that hasn't happened in our era, uh, in the no. Alan and Sarah era. No, it has not. But uh, so the situation was this: as usual, as we as we go through the week, Sarah and I collect links to talk about for the show, and I came across the Time Light Box of these pretty amazing uh, photos of wildfires. Um, and a lot of them shot at night, and just really interesting perspective. Uh, and then Sarah goes, I know that guy. You want him on the show? And you took it from there. <laughs> yeah, so I would love to introduce Stuart Paley to everybody. Stuart! Stuart! Hey, Stuart, how you doing? From L.A., coming in from L.A. Yeah, great to be on here. Thanks for having me on, and... Uh... Excited to chat a little bit about uh, wildfires and photography. Yes. We heard also that it's your birthday, birthday it boy. It is my birthday today, so I've got an interview with Photo Shelter and back-to-back -back shoots. So busy day is the best gift to have, you know, doing what you love on your birthday. That's cool. That's why I drink on my birthday. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll definitely be having a beer or two later. <laughs> That's good. Sarah, I heard you had some questions for Stuart. I do. So, Stuart, you have been shooting wildfires, and you've been doing a really interesting thing with it by shooting them at night, which is a totally different perspective than I've ever seen wildfires shot. Um, and I'd love to hear about how you came up with that idea and the first time that you went out at night and what that was like to shoot it. Well, I started shooting wildfires uh, two years ago when I was an intern at the Orange County Register. And the first fire I ever shot, I basically got there, and in 10 minutes I was watching a million-dollar home burn down. And it was a very shocking and powerful and humbling experience. So I was kind of hooked on photographing wildfires just because they're so visually amazing with the smoke um, and everything's orange. And it's just an interesting thing to photograph. And as I researched fires more and as we've gotten into the severe drought in California, I realized, hey, this is an important issue that needs to be documented. And I want to show the, you know, the world, the general public, California, what's going on with these fires. So um, I, I started photographing as many as I could. But the coverage of wildfires is very much, um, can, like, amongst the media is very consistent. You have shots of planes dropping retardant and very, you know, basic shots of people cutting handline and whatnot. And I wanted to approach it in a way that hadn't been done before to get the attention of the public to be like, hey, this is what's going on, this is a drought, this is a, a, a product of the drought, and to maybe learn or educate themselves more about wildfires or to read about what's going on, and hopefully the pictures can draw them in and get them interested in that. And also from an aesthetic standpoint, nature is beautiful. Um, what's happening is very natural. It's very destructive. Uh, 
to human infrastructure, and it's terrible. But at the same time, this is a natural event, just like you know, just like having a storm or waves at the beach. This is just something that happens, and I think it's a beautiful thing uh, in some respect. Wow. Well, you're capturing it in a very unique and beautiful way. You. Love your work. I'd also I'd love to hear about. Um, some of the safety techniques that you use while you're out there. I mean, are you riding out with the firefighters? Like, how how does that work? And also about your gear. Well, usually, usually I'm on my own. In California, there's a law on the books that allow credentialed media into disaster areas, uh, and you're on your own when you're there. But I have the same. It's called PPE or personal protective equipment that the firefighters have. Uh, Nomex pants. A shirt, you know, fire helmet, goggles. I even I have a fire shelter. I've got special fire boots that took like a year to break in. Uh, now they're super comfortable. <laughs> I, wow. spring, I, train, I train with the U.S. Forest Service actually uh, on the Cleveland National Forest, uh, just in Orange County. So I have like the same training that uh, the hand crews do. I don't have my fire certification because I'm not actually a firefighter, but I have the same experience. So it's allowed me access to a lot of crews and, uh, you know firefighters that are out there when I explain to them and show them my experience they're very comfortable with me tailing them around or you know kind of hiking out with them and in some cases firefighters have taken me in their trucks and whatnot uh, in certain situations so it's been absolutely an amazing experience and there there are some really great selfless people and they work their butts off out there um, as far as gear it gets thrashed destroyed everything my cameras smell like smoke it usually takes about a week for the smoke smell to go away Oh wow! Um, my 24 to 70 uh, is broken. I actually need to drop it off in Nikon today. Uh, but yeah, no, I've broken I've broken lenses. I mean, I I probably had close to two thousand dollars in just repairs and maintenance due to uh, how how hard it is on the gear at the fires. Wow! And is that just the extreme heat, or is that you dropping your camera? Or like what what exactly? Not necessarily the heat, but it's just there's a lot of smoke and ash, and when you get the Santa Ana wind events in California. It gets into the, everywhere in the camera. It's like being in a dust oh. at like uh, Burning Man. Even though these okay. lenses get dirty, but the zoom lenses get gummed up and things like that. And, and one time I did drop a lens because I was had adrenaline going and I was running and it was not smart of me to do what I was doing and I dropped a lens. So that was a, that was a big chunk of the repair. But yeah, I mean the cameras need to get like a general check and clean like after, almost after every fire. Wow. I didn't even think about the ash, but of course it's all flowing into your camera and all that. Hey, Stuart, I'm looking at some of the photos and I'm seeing star trails, so obviously you're on a tripod shooting long exposure. What are some of the technical challenges of shooting and trying to balance the exposure of the fire versus the sky? Well, that's a great question. Um, luckily, with these modern digital bodies, I just got an Icon D810. They have incredible high ISO capability and you couple that with really fast f1.4 lenses, and you're able to capture these scenes in 60 seconds or less. So you can capture the stars, uh, just the you know the entire Milky Way without movement, or you can you know go a little longer with the exposure and get the star trail. But usually you can't be too close to the flames when you're doing the long exposures because the fire burns so bright and intensely that the exposure is much greater than the stars. So if you pull back a little bit away from the fire as a light source it almost balances out with the uh, stars. And of course, I'm shooting in RAW, so I'm able to recover some of the highlights uh, when I open it up in Photoshop. And I try not to edit these too much. You know, they'll have burning and dodging, a little bit of an S-curve, but usually it's pretty similar to what comes out of camera. Hmm. Wow, that's incredible. What's, uh, so what, the, the reception, obviously, I mean, you got, you got yourself into the light box, so obviously people are interested in the photography. 
you mentioned at the top of the interview that that you wanted to help raise awareness of the fires, et cetera. Did, has, ha, have these photos accomplished that, do you think? Well, for example, like uh, when Time, Time tweeted out the picture I took at the El Portal fire in Yosemite, and that got retweeted hundreds of times, and I kind of looked at some of the people who are retweeting it, and they're just like everyday people who are on Twitter or homeowners. Uh, even people who had to evacuate from the fire were retweeting it. So you have the community at large uh, seeing these pictures and clicking on the link and reading the article about the wildfires. So I think there is some community engagement uh, going on here. And also just by being out there, I end up talking to a lot of homeowners and who have evacuated people at the fires, you know, kind of taking pictures, slowing down on the road and chatting with them and steering them towards my work. Or even just uh, towards, uh, you know, websites like readyforwildfire.org where people can learn about how to prepare to evacuate and prepare their homes against wildfire, like clearing flammable brush from around their house and things like that. Now, listen, I'm not a pyromaniac, but I was uh, watching a fire burn, just a, a little fire pit burn a couple weeks ago, and I was like, wow, I can see how people get into this. And, and I'm looking at your photos, and it sort of makes the fire, these hugely destructive fires look kind of sexy, kind of beautiful. It's, it's kind of a weird uh, juxtaposition of of you know glam glamorizing fires in a way yeah I think I, that's a, that's a good point that you make and it's it's a it's a balance because at the end of the day these fires are very serious you know firefighters can get injured last year 19 firefighters were killed in Arizona and people lose their homes and there's tens of millions of dollars in damage so uh, you know it is a, a very humbling and amazing experience to be there and photograph and they're very beautiful so I, I view it, you know, it's it's definitely, the pictures are beautiful, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact that these are also very destructive, It's if, if that makes sense. So, like, and actually, I've, I've had some criticism of this project that I'm glorifying wildfires or encouraging arsonists or making, um, not being serious about the fact that people are losing homes, but it's something that I take very seriously. And at the end of the day, sometimes if you have uncomfortable situations, you still need to document them, especially because we're in a historic drought. It would be a disservice to the historical record if these fires are not being photographed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Would you ever want to do portraits of the people who have lost their homes? Does anything like that interest you? Or That's something that I'm, I'm very interested in. In some cases, I photographed uh, people, you know, if they're going through the remains of their home, of course, you know, after talking with them and getting their permission and whatnot. And uh, that's definitely something on the radar. I've also looked at uh, doing portraits of the firefighters while they're out there. It's very difficult, though, because they're literally working the whole time. But kind of capturing, you know, the sweat and the ash on their face and showing people kind of all the hard work they're going through and kind of capturing that moment. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, um, you just completed a $10,000 successful Kickstarter, which congratulations to that. That is awesome, to uh, publish a book with all of this work. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you promoted your Kickstarter and the types of backers that you got. Well, the Kickstarter, most of the funding for the Kickstarter is actually going towards the actual nuts and bolts of the project, paying for gas, you know, camera repairs, things like that. And one level, of the back, one level of the backers are actually able to get a book. So it's actually a pretty limited edition run on the book. But, um, you know, potentially down the road, I'd love to be able to do like a, like a campaign and print, you know, a couple hundred of books or whatnot, but as far as promoting the project, I actually launched it. I drove out to the Cleveland National Forest where it has a very heavy fire uh, history and drove up to the mountain where I 
off-roaded up to the top of the mountain where I got reception and launched the project live from the mountain. Wow. Instagram did that. So I kind of tried to do media blitz at the beginning of it. And I just emailed everyone I knew who's interested in my work and said, hey, I'm doing this project. Uh, and the outpouring of support was absolutely amazing. And then Kickstarter actually featured it um, as one of their top picks. And then it was featured as Project of the Day on their homepage. So when that was featured as Project of the Day, um, the backers skyrocketed. I think I got half of my donations on that one day. Oh, then, that's amazing. And then there was one backer who donated $5,000 out of the over $10,000 raised. Whoa. Wow. She was a retired firefighter living in the Midwest and was just, um, I think, a little bit older and very interested in um, the fire-related photography and just really felt compelled to, to back the project. So it's totally amazing. I was not expecting it. That's great. Are, what, uh, what are you going to use to print the book? Are you using Blurb or...? I am I am using Blurb, and uh, you know some of their uh, folks live here in Southern California, so I've kind of talked to them about what I want to do with the book. And I've printed a few different books before on Blurb. I printed a couple copies of my master's project. I actually did a photo book with uh, Deborah in her class back at SMU. Oh, so nice. I'm familiar with the process and the cost structure and things like that. And I love the quality of Blurb. Of course, printing on demand is cost prohibitive, uh, but you know the backers, of course, have already already paid for that. So yeah, I'll be using Blurb. It's just a great way to get your work out there to practice printing a book. And you know, perhaps in the future I can formally publish a book. I'd love to do that. You know, the ISBN and Library of Congress and everything, that would be really cool. <laughs> that would be great. No, we love Blurb. I've used uh, MagCloud, which is partnered with Blurb, and have gotten great results. So that's awesome. Stuart, birthday boy, thank you so much for joining us for our first ever Isla Photography interview. Good yeah. luck with the shoots today. Yeah, good luck, Stuart. Thank you. Right. Easy, guys. Have a good rest, chat, rest of the chat. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. We have officially ejected Stuart, <laughs> or I don't know, maybe he's still there now. He's ejected. <laughs> Google Hangouts allows us to eject people. <laughs> so uh, as you were commenting before we started the broadcast, Sarah, we have a lot of depressing stuff to show today and talk about today. We do, and as you said, as is the world. <laughs> as just... is the world today. You know, you can, it's, it's kind of hard to believe all of the stuff that's going on. Yeah. It's Why don't we just that. get into it? Let's dive in. Let's dive in. So this, this was interesting. There was criticism leveled at New York Times staff photographer Tyler Hicks for being pro-Hamas in his coverage in Gaza because there were so few, if any, photos in the photos that he was uh, taking and transmitting, photos of uh, Hamas soldiers. And it was a criticism that was actually leveled at him by one of his editors at the Times, which was, you know, and I read the comments and I didn't actually think that they were that incendiary by any means, but it kind of blew up a little bit in the world of photojournalism. And over on the Lens blog, James Estrin interviewed Tyler about the situation. And uh, first of all, it was accompanied by some great photography. Um, and then second of all, uh, as we've heard through news reports, uh, Tyler explained that it's really difficult to pinpoint who's in Hamas and who's not in Hamas, like who the soldiers are and who, uh, who, who aren't soldiers, because it's not like they're wearing uniforms, this is like a guerrilla army, and they pop up out of nowhere and they fire a missile and then they, they go into a tunnel and, and they disappear. So 
I, I had sympathy for the dude who's like risking his life by going into a war zone, um, literally a war zone where, you know, an Israeli rocket could fire at him at any time. He talks about his fixer kind of driving him out in the morning, which he says is a very terrible time to, to drive out because that's when the, the drones, Israeli drones, are operating. And then he talks about looking out of his window and seeing this scene. He, he heard one rocket explode. He saw kids on a beach running, and then he saw another rocket explode killing the kids. And it gives you a real appreciation for like what the conditions are like on the ground, and then to be saying, hey, where are the photos of the soldiers? It's almost like, yeah, what sort of... <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say. My, so, you know, we, we see all kinds of stuff on Facebook, Sarah, of course, and in, in, the, in the court of public opinion, and, and you kind of feel inclined to take sides, but finally I realize, you know what, both sides are behaving pretty badly, and it's, it's unfortunate for the civilian populations of Israel and the people in, in Gaza. Um, just tremendous amount of destruction going on and really, really sad. Yeah, and that really comes across. Uh, this was the photo that ran on the cover of uh, the New York Times. It was the chosen one, <laughs> really. Um, and seeing the children, he takes a lot of pictures of kids, I noticed, especially throughout this gallery of images. A lot of images of children crying and running. And, and you know, that... That, that is a huge part of the story. That yeah. No, it's not the soldiers, because he, he can't get them, but you can see the aftermath, and you can see the effect on the kids. And it is, it's tragic, no matter which side you're photographing. Yeah, and I don't find that to be like sensationalist or pandering in any way, like to show the effect that it's having on civilians and kids. I think that's... You know, when we talk about using photography to inform the public about what's going on, these are a real, you know, obviously it's one guy in one place at one time with a specific edit working against an editor. So we're obviously seeing like a point of view, but, but the destruction is real. Yeah, and I think it's important. I mean, we're seeing Tyler Hicks' point of view. He's done this for many, many years, and he's been in war zones for so long. Um, and so... I'd say, I mean, he's a well, very well-respected photographer, Pulitzer Prize winner. I mean, he knows what he's doing, and if he could be getting the soldiers, he would, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Speaking of soldiers, over on The Atlantic, uh, there's a piece that was actually published today about Kenneth Jarecki, who shoots for contact, and this is from the uh, Gulf War, so this is years and years ago. Um, but he took a photo that you've probably seen but that they wouldn't publish at the time and it's a soldier burned to death at the top of a tank and Jarecki says in the piece that he thought that this was going to be the photo that would that would turn the tide of public sentiment against the war but it was never run um, and for reasons that you can imagine I mean it's a gruesome gruesome photo and Imagine if that was, you know, someone you knew. It, it, that'd be a horrible way to sort of wake up and see that uh, in the newspaper. There was no internet at this time. This is 1992. But to see this on the front cover of the New York Times would be probably pretty jarring. So it's an interesting situation to be in to say, I've got this very, very iconic photo, but nobody wants to run it because 
and we, we've heard this uh, with other war coverage, it's like it's too gruesome, it's too graphic, we don't want to show the public this. I don't even know, I, you know, nowadays I feel like people are so immune to stuff, but that's still a pretty powerful photo. Yeah, it's terrifying. It looks like this, like a scene from like a, a horror movie, like a zombie movie. Yeah. It's, it's terrifying. <laughs> um, really, well, the, the, you know, I saw this piece 10 minutes before it went to air, so I didn't get a, a chance to read it yet. I'm definitely going to read it after we, we finish, but that's over on the Atlantic, and all of these links, as we mentioned before, are on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com if you want to check them out. And then the last piece of war photography that we have today uh, is on vox.com, five years of Israel-Palestine uh, Conflict as Garalbi Ahmad. Um, and look at this photo. I mean, you have two photographers behind this guy, but the, the, the shooter is pointing his gun at, at Ahmad. It's crazy. Uh, and I was looking through, you know, the set the set of photos here, and there's just some really I mean it's it's such a great portfolio of images in terms of the mix of uh, you know everyday life in this part of the world combined with this this crazy conflict that's been going on for years and years and years and seeing things like this people you know cutting a hole through a fence trying to flee um, you know from one side of the fence to the other and seeing as we have here in the US with the Mexican border and Texas border um, and Arizona border, you know, th these fences, like this photo here, just this, this fence, <laughs> as if that's really going to keep people out, as if that's going to engender good relations between, uh, you know, the two sides. Um, but really great photography, so check that out on Vox.com if you get a chance. We're not done with the depressing stuff, Sarah. We're just shifting gears away from the war photography. Oh, goodness. Yes. <laughs> well, this one was interesting. Um, Lindsay Viatoro is a photographer, and she specializes in stillborn photography. So in this case, it's a, it's a portrait series of a family whose child was stillborn, and they requested to take some photos with the baby before the baby was taken away. Um, and it's, it's weird. It's weird. I, I mean, the reaction that she's gotten has been largely positive. And I certainly see, I certainly see the benefit for the family in terms of saying, hey, this is, uh, this is something that we created. Uh, she didn't make it. This is a memorial of of the life that could have been, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, the, but it's strange to see photos of a dead baby, and, it's, and the thing that bothered me the most, which, is, which was found in some of the comments on Petapixel, was the weird placement of the logo for this woman's photography business. It's not always like in the corner. She actually moves it around to be very prominent in the photo. So everyone looks like an ad. Yeah, her watermark is not the most tasteful watermark I've seen. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah, this is a very—I mean, this is a very tricky, you know, 
subject and, and thing to talk about. I mean, the family, you know, they, they want a memory of this. I think it's very hard to do this um, ooh, tastefully. I, yeah. I, I don't know. That's That might not be the right word. Um, it's something like that, though. It's something about somebody's going to be offended or someone's going to feel uncomfortable because it's slightly death can be uncomfortable and death of a baby can be mm -hmm. comfortable and then the whole watermark logo thing is mm -hmm. makes it feel commercial. Yes, yes, right. Yeah, which just leaves me a little feeling a little strange about the entire set of images. Yeah. In general, but you know, you know but if yeah. the family if the family wants it and I'm sure obviously the family is getting unwatermarked and that's really all that matters, you know. Right. Is, is for them and they you know so many families go through this and mothers go through it and um, and so for the family to say it's okay for you to share it on social is re is really brave and but it is too bad about the watermark but that's pretty much <laughs> I totally agree with the bravery comment and I think it's sort of a sign of the times for better or for worse that you kinda knew if 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 you're the photographer you kinda know these are gonna go viral and you kind of go, well, seeing all these other photos that have gone viral with, without attribution and without any tangible monetary benefit to the photographer, that the best thing I can do is actually kind of watermark my image in a very, very prominent way. Yeah, very prominent. Almost obnoxious way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So we've seen other examples of, of this type of photography before. This is the first time I've seen such prominent... Um, advertising on the images, but you know what? To your point, if the if the family of the baby is comfortable with it, then who are we to judge? Yeah. Lindsay, keep doing what you're doing. I still think the logo's a little weird, but they're great photos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this one I'm sure is going to get us into trouble because you're going to misread. You're going to misread my interpretation of it. And here's the thing. Oh, what is that? So. The, the title on Petapixel is New Jersey Cop. Constitutional right to take pictures in a public place is null because, quote, Obama has decimated the friggin' Constitution. <laughs> so let me set this up for you. This guy and his kid go to a public uh, office of some sort, and I can't remember what they were inquiring about. It was something completely innocuous. They, they wanted to know about, like, permitting or something about something. And the dad had his camera, and he started taking pictures in this public area. It was like a civic building, a civic governmental building. And uh, the cops are called. And this cop here comes up to uh, the photographer. This is uh, Special Police Officer Richard Racine of the Borough of Helmetta Police Department. And a heightened discussion, uh, animated discussion occurs where the photographer is saying, I have a constitutional right in a public space, particularly one that's a government public space, to take photos. It's a constitutional right, First Amendment, blah, 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 blah. And, and of course, every photographer knows they have a constitutional right to take photos. They have constitutional right to take photos of in, in a public area. They have constitutional right to film uh, police, et cetera, et cetera. And this cop says, no, you don't, because Obama has decimated the freaking Constitution, <laughs> so I don't need to enforce the Constitution. And I'm thinking to myself, this is crazy. This is crazy. And that's not, that, you know, that's not to pick one side 
of the aisle or not. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. If you're a police officer, your 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 the oath you took to protect the Constitution is not based on your interpretation of whether the president <laughs> is violating the Constitution or not. And, and that doesn't alter the right of photographers to take photos. Yeah, that's not part of your job. That's not part of your job. <laughs> I don't understand this stuff. You know... Well, it turns out that uh, the, the, the officer resigned. He was caught on tape saying, you can't do this stuff, and, and whether he was embarrassed or he thought it was the right thing to do or he was just like, F, F you guys, F the Constitution, F the <laughs> yeah, and he's, you know, who knows what the motivation was. I think it was F the friggin' Constitution. <laughs> I'm, I'm out. <laughs> but it is a very interesting uh, uh, sequence to watch, and, and, you know, we talked about the Eric Gardner choking incident a few weeks ago and how... How instrumental photography was in in showing that there was a chokehold, and then the coroner comes in and says it's chokehold, and, and so so there's a there, there's a real a real reason to photograph things um, as a watchdog, even you know people behave. You can catch people behaving uh, improperly, and hopefully they'll modify their behavior. So yeah, I love that that this guy's daughter did not stop filming. <laughs> yeah, he had his little daughter with her, and he goes, here, he hands her the camera, and he's like, you know, keep filming. And the yeah, funny part of it, so he, he was filming properly in landscape mode. You know, my biggest pet peeve is everybody uses their iPhone, and they, they hold it in portrait mode. So you get a little strip, a vertical strip of video. Right. And he hands the little girl the phone, and, and for a second, she turns it, and then she turns it back. And She's I was like, like oh, yes. that's wrong. <laughs> yes. Somebody trained you well. Uh -huh. um, here's more depressing stuff. In India, uh, I want to say it was six months to a year ago, there were two incidences that I can remember of people being raped and beaten on buses. And on Jezebel, we see uh, an Indian fashion photographer doing a photo series called The Wrong Turn where a model is depicted on public transportation being attacked, molested, groped. And I just, you know, fashion, fashion photography often pushes the boundaries of taste, but there's just, an, even in, in my most liberal seat, I can't get around this. And for the photographer to sort of defend it as being like, you know, I came up with this idea independent of the rapes and before the rapes, so it's okay. I just, I couldn't even understand where it was coming from. You know, yeah. it just makes me uncomfortable. And and the title, The Wrong Turn? Yeah. Sarah? Come on. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you took the wrong turn is what he did. This is so offensive on so many levels. And also, you know, one of the... When, when it's bad fashion photography just on its own, it's void of emotion. There's like no emotion. That's when you know it's really bad photography. This has zero emotion. There's nothing that's trying to be communicated other than the glamorization of, of gang rape. Like this is just awful. I totally agree. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. You know, using, using like this, the flared light um, and this woman in not just submissive positions, but like 
literally being attacked. Yeah. That the, the nothing about the fashion is being communicated here. No. It's just really, really an unfortunate set of photos. It's a terrible set of photos. Gosh, are we at the fun stuff yet? I hope so. Oh gosh. Well, here's another one. This is a supermodel Carly Kloss stealing a photo. So the photo was taken by uh, Rachel Scroggins, who's the house photographer for Oscar, Oscar De La Renta's social media accounts. And she had uh, backstage access at a fashion show and took this photo of Carly Kloss here in the lower left corner, taking a selfie of herself. And then Carly stole that image and posted it on her Instagram account without attribution. And then that photo went viral. It was picked up by all of these media outlets and then used in media pieces to be like, best, best models uh, selfies and how to take a great selfie. And this, this image was used to illustrate it. And Rachel was just like, what? So she contacted Carly and Carly, Carly apologized to her and then in the comment on the photo on Instagram, which already had like a thousand comments, Carly says, oh, by the way, the photo was taken by by Rachel. But of course, comments except for the top one get buried immediately on Instagram. So it's kind of like it didn't even do anything. Rachel said that Carly subsequently apologized a few times, but it's kind of like it sort of misses the point to to steal the image and then apologize after and be like, oh my god, you know. And and a couple other people pointed out that Carly does this all the time, which, you know, I can understand. If you're a model, like you're 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 not producing images of yourself or you're infrequently producing images of yourself. But, you know, if you're going to steal the image, for God's sake. Yeah, the damage was done the, the moment that done. she posted, most posted it without a caption. I don't even know what to say. I mean, I, the, the flip side of it is if Rachel is the house photographer... And if she's therefore a staff photographer, then everything she's producing is work for hire anyway. In theory, I don't know the, what the contract situation is, so I'm, I'm speculating. But let's say Rachel is a staff photographer for Oscar De La Renta, and it's a work for hire situation. She might not own the copyright, so then she has no basis to say anything. But let's say she's a freelancer, and she does own the copyright. Well, this is really affecting her livelihood. Like in in a way that Carly can't even imagine. Carly's probably making twenty five grand a day to show up, <laughs> just to wake up. <laughs> yeah, Rachel is probably making thirty five grand a year. Right. Where's the justice? I know, and this image was used on so many different editorial oh. sites. Mm-hmm. Oi. Carly, Carly, shame on you, Carly. I know, Carly, and I like your Carly cookies at Milk Bar, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, okay, well. Oh, here's another, well, another. Yeah, about selfies. <laughs> another selfie. <laughs> I love this. This was, this was funny. So David Slater is a British wildlife photographer who went to Indonesia to take photos of Macacas. Am I saying that correctly? Macaws. Maca. Anyway, <laughs> some sort of primate. Turns out the macaca 
I'm going to just call it macaca for now. <laughs> somebody hashtags us on I Love Photo and says, that's not a macaca. Um, the, the monkey steals... See, now I feel bad for calling it a monkey because it's not a monkey, but I'm going to call it, call it a monkey. The monkey steals David's uh, camera and then takes several hundred selfies after it figures out how to trigger the shutter by pushing the shutter button. David recovers the camera. He goes through all of these images, many of which were blurry, but he finds like a couple, a couple stellar selfies. He, I, I don't know exactly where he published them, but he published them online, and then of course they went viral. And then, uh, then a guy uh, on Reddit, uh, Tomas Kozlowski, takes the photo and posts it on Wikipedia. And then David says, hey, that's my photo to Wikipedia. Please take down the photo. And Wikipedia says, no, you don't own the copyright. And he goes, what do you mean? It's on my camera. And they go, no, because an animal took the photo. You've indicated previously <laughs> in your captions that the animal took the photo. And so both Tomas as well as Wikipedia are saying, this file is in the public domain because the author is a non-human animal. So of course all of these, it blows up on the internet because it's just, look at this photo, it's a great photo. It's a great photo. I mean this is this is photographic evidence that taking selfies is like a basic human. <laughs> a basic primate instinct. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, smiling, it's like well composed. <laughs> so I, I asked a couple of law professors about the situation and they said yes copyright law indicates that a non that authorship for copyright can only be held by human so if in fact an animal took the photo then there's no copyright holder but another copyright professor said as was the case in the Ellen selfie, if you remember at the Oscars, Ellen took a selfie, right? Yes. If the, the, the operator of the camera isn't necessarily the one who holds the copyright. Another monkey, Bradley Cooper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the, this professor, Britt Payne, who's a friend of mine, said, listen, in that situation, and he watched the video from the Oscars, he said, you can see Ellen clearly directing people. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, Cooper was basically acting as the cameraman. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, uh, on, a, on a film shoot, you don't say, oh, the camera operator is the guy who holds the copyright for the movie. The, ca the camera operator is just following the directions of the director. So similarly, in this case, Britt argues, well, all the settings of the camera were preset by the photographer, and the monkey, Makaka, is only <laughs> triggering the thing. So, so he's arguing that, that, in fact, David should hold the copyright. And then Leslie Burns, uh, who helps out with photo attorney Carolyn Wright, uh, says, but all of this is irrelevant because it was a British photographer working in Indonesia when an animal stole his camera, so what does U.S. copyright have to do with anything? Oh, God, just threw a wrench right in there. Total wrench. Total wrench, but totally makes sense. So yeah, yeah. Speculation over copyright is sort of irrelevant. Well, whose side are you on, Alan? The photographer. Oh gosh, or the monkeys. Know, I I gotta be honest. I'm on the photographer's side. Yeah, I am too. I am too. I mean, he's the the fact that he had all the settings set. There you go. Yeah. It was his own memory card, his own camera, his equipment. 
it, it's his photo in my mind. You know, the crazy thing is when I was talking to the other law professor, uh, James Himmelman, I think is his name, I said, well, if, if, a, if a human actor steals your camera, takes a, an award-winning photo with your camera, does that thief then hold the copyright for that image? And he goes, yeah. Oh. And I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> that's insane. It is. Yeah, whenever I pass my camera around at a party, I kind of just claim all the photos that everybody's taken. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As do I. But, you know, he made the point, like, you look at graffiti artists who appropriate stuff. Um, they're basically, you know, they might deface something or they might do some sort of parody of something and they hold the copyright for, for that creative work even though they're defacing stuff illegally. And I was like, well, hmm. this is why IP law, you know, it's so hard to understand because there's so many shades of gray. Right. Yeah. This is a very unique case. <laughs> very unique case. Very unique case. All right, monkeys. We're getting a little, a little more fun here. Uh, this is a photographer, poet, artist, everything. Um, her name is Lucy Hilmer. And for... I don't know how many years, like 40 years or so, she's been taking uh, self-portraits, not selfies, self-portraits <laughs> of her uh, in her birthday suit. On her birthday. On her birthday. <laughs> and they're fantastic. Yeah, they're, they're great. These are so beautiful. They're so beautiful. I mean, let's be honest, she's a good-looking lady, first of all. Yeah, um, but she's also a great photographer, and the whole concept of this series is like really great. And just to see sort of the the progression of aging um, is remarkable. So here's age sixty eight, still looking great with your <laughs> husband, still wearing those big white <laughs> granny panties. Still wearing the lollipop panties. <laughs> oh, is that what we call them, lollipop panties? Yeah, apparently so, lollipop underpants. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that, that she calls them white lollipop. So my question is, did she have the same pair of lollipop panties for 40 years? That is a very, that's a valid question. We'll have to, we'll have to find out. I know, uh, Lucy, if you listen in, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like really great. You know, it kind of makes me want to take self-portraits on my birthday, which I've tried before. My problem is, you know, I see people like Lucy and I see people like Noah Kalina and they're able to take photos every year, in Noah's case, every day. Yeah. I just, I don't have the discipline to even take a photo of myself every year on the same day. Oh, well, then, then you're not going to be able to do it. Yeah. <laughs> project. Give me an easier project, people. Um, I was cruising. I was cruising, no pun intended. Okay, pun intended. I was cruising uh, on the New York Times website, and I came across uh, this article. And apparently in this little town of Astera, Sweden... They love their Detroit muscle cars, and they have a huge uh, a festival or whatever you want to call it during the summer um, to showcase all these cars. And in a lot of cases, you know, in, in the U.S., Sarah, a lot of the car aficionados like to make their cars as beautiful as possible, as vintage as possible. Oh, yeah. Uh, in Vesteras, they don't really care that much. So they have these hulking... Uh, pieces of rusted steel. Um, but anyway, Linus Sundahl uh, Jurf, uh, who I assume is Swedish, took a wonderful set of photos. And uh, you just can see like this rusted out thing. And he's using 
what looks like a 1-4 lens. I mean, you get a really nice uh, uh, short depth of field for these images. Good separation, good toning of the images. Yeah, the color is great. The color is great, right? And it's got that kind of... I mean, I'm going to make this up as if it exists, but it, it has that sort of that 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 Nordic, right. Swedish look to it, if you will. The Swedish look with the American cars, yeah. Yeah, but look at look at this thing. That is decked the, out. A stretched Pontiac Catalina Safari. It has six doors on it, not four people. <laughs> six doors, and the the also the all weird thing about it is they said a lot of people fly Confederate flags. That's bizarre. Which is a little bizarre, because first of all, it's they're Detroit cars, and then they <laughs> fly like southern <laughs> flags, probably not realizing sort of the connotation of right. flying the Confederate flag, but whatever. These know. cars are so far from the Pimp My Ride cars, it's not even funny. <laughs> but I, I love that they love them. I think that that's great. Yeah, and they seem to have a good time. You know, they're, they say the cops are super lenient, so there's apparently there's some drinking and driving, but everyone's going like two miles an hour, so I guess it's not a problem. <laughs> um, and people seem genuinely happy, and it looks like the weather was fantastic. Now, the only thing I have to say about this is that the car that won the contest was actually this car, which is oh, in pretty good shape. Wow, yeah, no, that's beautiful. Um, but a 1971 Plymouth Cuda, Barracuda. Ooh, looking it's like an olive green. Oh, yeah. Black with matte black on the back. Ooh, that's nice. I'd like to drive that around New York. Yeah. <laughs> nice work on that. We had so much um, death and destruction at the top of the show and copyright infringement and constitutional rights being infringed and all this kind of stuff. Uh, we thought we would end on a on a fun, silly note that barely has anything to do with photography other than their photos. <laughs> Which, you know, strictly speaking, Sarah, that's not dissimilar from anything else that we talk on on the show. No, it's true. As long as there's a photo of it, then... So these photos are were a part of a promotion for the British Channel 4's new shorts original series, and they're film shorts. They're not short shorts, but that was the play on words. And they took four male models and they put them in suits except for the pants were shorts. And not only were they shorts, they were short shorts. <laughs> and, they, and they photographed the reaction that people had around London and some of them are just fantastic. Oh, I love the women's reaction to these short shorts. Like this one is just, <laughs> these two women are just going... They can't believe it. They're go yeah. Now, I will say, because we'll see this in some of these other photos, this particular model has a lot of underbutt, as mm, we like to say. Mm -hmm. And Sarah, you know, because we, wa we both walk around New York, there's been, a lot of, there's been a lot of underbutt this summer, but mostly from women, and this is the first time I've seen <laughs> significant male underbutt. The temperatures have been high this summer, yes. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Very funny photos. Yeah, you know, I'm glad that the Brits, you know, they still got their sense of humor. See, this is what I'm saying. The guy on the left has a lot of underbutt. The guy on the right, who's a lot more muscular, like his, his pants are tailored a little shorter. I mean, a little longer. Uh, not seeing as much butt there. That's true. Some, that's something true. like that. <laughs> uh, those are all from BuzzFeed. And as I mentioned before, all of the links, in case you really want to see men in short shorts and suits, you can find that at blog.photoshelter.com. Boy, we had a lot to talk about today. We did. It was great having Stuart on, too. Yeah, we got to do that more often. Well, you know, let's figure out who we can get on the show next week. 
All right. Maybe uh, maybe the short sh shorts models. <laughs> Or maybe Lucy Homer will appear out of nowhere and join us for the broadcast and tell us about her project. That would be great. Well, Sarah, uh, looks like there's going to be great weather. I'm going out to uh, the beach to some uh, boutique corn festival in uh, Brooklyn this weekend. Awesome. You take your camera? Yeah, I'm going to take my camera. Take cool. some photos. Cool. All right. So for Sarah Jacobs... This is Alan Murabayashi. Thanks for joining us for another episode of I Love Photography. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.